Hello there, I'm Brian Taylor. Down the years, you may have seen me on the telly or heard me on the wireless, but this is different. This is the Brian Taylor Podcast, brought to you by The Herald. Today. We've already got a quarter of our households in Scotland in 2019 were in fuel poverty. This just plunges more people into horrific choices, eating or eating. It doesn't feel good. The mood music is not very good coming from scientists and from other countries around the world. Some of this is about changing the system so it's just cheaper and easier. And it's the first choice. You don't need to think about making these changes because it's the obvious choice to use public transport, walk, cycle, live in a, a cheaper, warmer home. Hello there, I'm Brian Taylor. Very, very warm welcome indeed to my latest Herald podcast. Very special show today. I look ahead, of course to COP26 in Glasgow. Can a deal be struck to to tackle climate change? How will we judge success? Now, just with regard to that, here's a very, very good offer indeed from the Herald. You can get full access to the Herald's unrivaled COP26 summit coverage online for free for the next two weeks with our free trial. Details available at heraldscotland.com forward slash subscribe. That's heraldscotland.com forward slash subscribe. And of course, as ever, as ever, you can get 20% off an annual subscription using the exclusive code linked to this program, which is Herald Pod 2021. Herald Pod 2021. All of that available, of course, from, from the Herald. So as I say, a look ahead at, at COP26. That'll be the main item of the program. A look back, of course, at the budget as well, the Chancellor's budget. What do, what do we make of that? Uh, on the panel today, delighted to welcome two MPs, Scotland Office Minister Ian Stewart, SNP's Deirdre Brock to MSPs, Labour's Sarah Boyack and Mark Russell of the Greens. Welcome to, to all. And also delighted to welcome Herald colleague David Ball. David, thanks very much indeed. David, kick us off with the budget. Just a brief reminder of the, the main things that the Chancellor was was setting out yesterday. Yeah, that's right. He set out his annual budget. Um, some good news from the start that we expect to return to pre-COVID levels, the economy, a lot earlier than expected, um, the early part of next year, he said. And there's lots of different measures in there, including the national uh, living wage increasing to uh, £9.50 an hour for over 23s by next year. Um, From Scotland's point of view, the UK government claimed funding for the Scottish government will rise by £4.6 billion, um, the biggest funding package since the devolution settlement, uh, taking it to some £41 billion a year. But the Scottish government um, has claimed it received less grant funding each year in real terms um, if the emergency funding for COVID is sort of taken into account. Um, there's also 172 million from the UK government's levelling up fund to be spent on Scottish projects, including a big market project in Aberdeen. Um, but that's obviously caused a bit of controversy because the UK government have been accused of essentially legislating in sort of devolved areas. There are also policies, including um, a planned um, rise in duty on spirits, wine, ciders and beers. That was all cancelled. That was due to go ahead. Um, air passenger duty is also due to be cut on domestic flights um, from 2023, which has caused a bit of a row given the, as we're going to come on to, COP26 um, taking place. Yeah, David, thanks very much indeed. Stay with us and, and, and join throughout the programme. Minister Ian Stewart, thank you very much indeed for joining us. The Chancellor said it right at the end of his remarks that by the end of the Parliament, he wanted to be a tax-cutting uh, Chancellor, but hey, he wasn't that yesterday, was he? He was. He was. Um, the, the, the taxation increases in the pipeline already through the increase in national insurance and public spending rising across all departments. Is it a bit uh, sort of running counter to the 
the the uh, the, the reputation that he won? No, I think he's, it, what he did was quite clearly set out the, the long term ambitions. But in the immediate period, you know, the our nation's finances, right across the world, government's finances have taken a, a, an unexpected and massive hit. Uh, and I think it's only right that we we make sure that our public finances are in good order, uh, and that you know we address some of the long term uh, challenges. The, the tax rise you've referred to, uh, we're quite upfront about it, uh, is there both to uh, help provide some immediate extra finance for the health service to deal with the COVID backlog but also to address the, the long-term issue of social care, uh, which has been kicked around by governments of all stripes for, for too long. So he's, you know, he's being honest and, and uh, you know, addressing these immediate concerns, but uh, setting out what his long-term ambitions are. Well, on, on various, you know, announcing spending for various projects, including in Inverness, et, et cetera, individual projects through levelling up and, and through... Um, grants of, of various natures, but shouldn't they, that be done and, and those decisions be taken by the elected Scottish Parliament? Aren't, aren't you usurping the role of, of devolution in that regard, Mr Stewart? No, because what all these projects are about, it's not central government, whether that's in Westminster or Edinburgh, telling local areas, this is what we think you should be spending on. These schemes and build, these build on the city and regional growth deal uh, program we've had in place for some time. It's encouraging local areas to identify those long-term investments that they think are best for for their local area. And you know the the, the bids were the, the, the projects were heavily oversubscribed, uh, and you know from local authorities of all political colours have been clamouring to get uh, some of their. Uh, projects approved. This is only the first round of them. There'll be more to come. But it's what I would call real devolution. It's encouraging the local areas to to bring forward what they think is is right for their their local areas. Okay, let's bring in the others. Let's bring in Deirdre Brock first of all. Deirdre, what do you make of the budget? Good, bad, indifferent as far as Scotland is concerned? Well, I'm, I have to say this. It's, I see it very much as a missed opportunity. We've had 10 years of brutal cuts from the Tories uh, and we are seeing a huge fallout and damage from Brexit. And we've got COP26 days away. Um, we don't see anything that takes a uh, real account of those particular measures. I just want to bring in uh, just those projects that you were mentioning, Brian. I mean, one of those is actually in my constituency, the Granton Waterfront, um, the gasometer is... Uh, I haven't had details yet of the actual amount, but certainly the bid was in there for um, decontamination of the site and um, the refurbishment of the gasometer itself, which is an iconic structure on the Granton waterfront. That will help to unlock a big project that the Edinburgh Council has planned for the area, a big waterfront master plan, um, which is really exciting. It's got some real potential to it. Um, I'd like to think that some of my needling of, of UK government ministers, including Ian there, um, about uh, pork barrelling and uh, inappropriate um, direction towards, uh, in, in the Stronger Towns Fund, for example, in England, um, towards the constituencies of Tory uh, ministers and MPs uh, has had some effect. I'd like to think that anyway. But it's a great project and obviously anyone would welcome investment into their constituency and particularly into to Granton, which is an area of deprivation. But I mean just to just going back to the budget, I mean I noticed that the Institute of Fiscal Studies director, Paul Johnson, said 
this about the budget, this is actually awful. Yet more years of real incomes barely growing, high inflation, rising taxes, poor growth, keeping living standards virtually stagnant for another half a decade. So, I mean, he's an independent, you know, uh, financial uh, commentator. So, uh, you know, obviously Ian's going to be trying to put the best spin on the on the budget, uh, but um, you need to look to other places like Greenpeace, for example. Greenpeace says that the Chancellor has appeared to have delivered just 5% of what's needed to roll out green homes, clean transport, nature protection, and support for workers to transition green jobs. And, and just days after we've heard that the CCS project, the cluster for the northeast of Scotland, has been rejected by the UK government, um, it's 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 pretty it's a it's pretty sad um, to have to listen to Ian tell us about how uh, things are, are, are actually working out very well bring, for Scotland. Bring in, I'll bring in the others in, in, in a second. But Ian, what, what about that carbon capture and storage project? There was a pretty substantial expectation that the most, if you mm -hmm. like, um, oven-ready project was the one in the northeast of Scotland, and yet it's been bypassed and ignored. Why on earth is that? Sure. Well, for, I'll come on to that. So I'm happy to tell Deirdre the Granton uh, scheme was $16 million of shade over it. And I've, I've been there to yeah, visit yeah. it. It's a fantastic. Fantastic uh, scheme, uh, but on on uh, Acorn, um, it's it's not right to say it's been rejected. There was a, a competitive bidding uh, process uh, for carbon capture schemes right round the UK. Uh, there were at this round. This is only the first round. Uh, two were awarded, uh, and they went to the ones that had the best uh, case at the moment and could deliver the most immediate results. The Acorn one was third. Um, it's not been rejected. It's there as a reserve, and we're working with them to make sure that that gets in uh, to the next round. Now, just to give you one illustration, did you, did you, did you I, lobby? Did, did you lobby? Did you lobby for this to go ahead? We, we were, we were, of course, we were closely involved in. It's not our decision, uh, but we've been working with them. Uh, one of the re reasons why the other two schemes. Uh, uh, had a sort of better immediate case is because of the clusters of. Uh, carbon-heavy industries close to where they are. Aberdeen doesn't have that same level as, uh, say, Teesside uh, or, or the, the Northwest area. doesn't mean it's a bad scheme. Far from it. And that's why it's actually been given this reserve status but, and we'll be working... Very, very briefly, Deirdre, I'm keen to bring yeah, in... No, just quickly, I mean, that was the most shovel-ready project. Everyone acknowledges that. Ian Wood has come out very strongly um, advising the government they should reconsider that whole point. The money from that pot will not be available to the Scotland cluster, as I understand it, until 2030 at the earliest. So. OK, okay. let's bring in Sarah Boyack. Sarah, what, what did you make of the Chancellor's budget, good, bad, indifferent, as far as Scotland is concerned? Well, in terms of the people of Scotland, um, it's not good because although there's a marginal increase in the national minimum wage, uh, people are being hit now in terms of their bills. Uh, gas bills are going up, food costs are going up, and people are really struggling, not just coming out of the pandemic, but getting through the pandemic. And, you know, taxes are going up on working families with a record increase in national insurance. So at the same time, you're getting big tax cuts to companies like Amazon, who have done very well during the pandemic. So mm. we would have wanted to see more support for people, for families. Um, one of the things we wanted to do was to abolish VAT and domestic energy bills for six months just to get people through this winter. Um, and the other thing that I think is absolutely crucial is thinking about more investment for our public services and supporting people. And, and one of the things we've been raising regularly in the Scottish Parliament is the issue of the, the cut um, that's being made in people's 
um, finances, uh, particularly those people that are, are losing out on the, the money that's been cut from universal credit. So there was a How lot the more the How about the chances announcement on the taper, taking 8% off the, 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 the taper levy? It just doesn't go far enough. It doesn't make up that loss of £20. Now, to people in professional incomes, £20 doesn't sound like an awful lot, but you're talking people on incredibly low budgets with huge pressures. And just even looking at the cost of heating people's homes over the next few months, we've already got a quarter of our households in Scotland in 2019 were in fuel poverty. This just plunges more people into horrific choices eating or eating. And I honestly think the Chancellor should have been looking at that issue because it's a, a real issue and it's a now issue. Okay, Mark Russell, presumably your party has done a, if you like, a green assessment of, of the budget. How does it measure up in that regard? Yeah, can I just agree with Sarah there? I mean, I think this is a bad budget for people, bad budget for the poorest in our society. And, you know, those inflationary pressures, particularly on fuel, particularly on, you know, the household shop, um, on rent, uh, those are there and they're, they're growing. They're not going away. So any increase in the minimum wage will be will be wiped out by those inflationary pressures. So we need, we need to get to grips with that. But on the climate, um, this was an opportunity, right? This is an opportunity for Rishi Sunak to really send a clear message about how the UK could be a global leader. And there are there are tough decisions to make here around how you tax overconsumption of fossil fuels. Those decisions have not been made. Um, we're continuing to see tax rebates effectively for the oil and gas sector. We've seen a disastrous decision through this budget to actually cut the tax for air passenger duty. Now, all that's doing is directly undermining our domestic rail services in in this country. It's directing people back onto flights when we know that we're going to have to cut the demand from aviation to have any chance of meeting our emissions. And even if you look then at the, the capital infrastructure spending, you know, 20 billion pounds on new roads when you know, we've had the infrastructure commission in Scotland say that we need to move away from that. We need to maintain our roads better <laughs> rather than building new roads, which are just going to lock people into unsustainable traffic use, you know, freezing the fuel duty as well. And then even with it, with the leveling up fund, I mean, this just seems to now be a, a personal slush fund for, um, for MPs. Um, and, and we've seen that with, with the city deal previously. Oh, well, Ian's, you know, shaking his head. I can remember this when Luke Graham was an MP. Um, under the, the Sterling Clarence City deal, he effectively hived off millions of pounds and put out a press release to the local papers saying, oh, you know, you can apply, you can effectively apply for city deal funding if you work with me and you work through my office. Now, I, I, I think there are issues here around ensuring that there's alignment between Scottish government spending and UK government spending. When it comes to transport infrastructure, that's a devolved matter. We need proper local transport plans that tackle the climate issue provide a, a public transport alternative for people. And that needs I'm to be move, I'm going to move to COP in a, in a couple of seconds. But Ian Stewart, a chance to answer. You, you were shaking your head. I, I saw Deirdre Brock nodding, actually, but you, you were shaking your head pretty vigorously during that accusation of a slush fund. It's absolutely not that. The whole point of the, these funds is to give local communities uh, and local areas the chance to bid in for projects that, for often and for many years, they've been wanting to, to see delivered. And if you look at the spread of the uh, the, uh, the projects across Scotland, uh, and, and that includes a community ownership fund, which you know mm-hmm. for allowing a community to buy over an asset uh, that needs uh, to be saved or upgraded, uh, you know that is it's it's real devolution. It's encouraging the local areas 
And what you see through the city and regional growth deal program is actually a very good collaboration between local authorities, uh, the, the voluntary sector, uh, private sector and governments at, at both Holyrood and, and Westminster, putting together long-term investment uh, programs. So if, if you look at the detail of what these, these schemes are about, it, it's absolutely not a some sort of personal pork barrel slush fund. Okay, Ian, thanks very much indeed. Thanks, Minister. Let, let's move to Let's move directly into, into to COP26. Let's talk climate change. Let's talk global warming. Let's talk the endeavours being made at this, this gathering of leaders from around the planet converging upon Glasgow. David Ball, D- David, just take us through what's happening. There's a, there's a leaders' summit first, isn't there? And then, and then negotiations. What, what happens? What, what, what can we expect? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the global leaders will be in Glasgow for the first few days and then their negotiation teams and their sort of um, environment ministers will kind of take over from there. But as you said, the That's world's attention will be on. Yeah, so it starts on Monday, really. Sunday yeah. is the official opening date, but it won't get going until Monday. Um, the attention will be on Glasgow for the next two weeks, really, um, as they try and thrash out this sort of crucial deal to limit um, global warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is seen as sort of a, a tipping point beyond which we could see yeah. catastrophic damage. Um, the Paris Agreement uh, committed to limit to 2 degrees Celsius and with sort of an ambition of working towards this 1.5. Um, but the individual plans by nations, sort of UK government included, are sort of nowhere near good enough to sort of to keep that um, that warming below that limit. Um, the UK government as host is also hoping to get commitments from countries, including China, um, on sort of getting rid of burning coal for sort of energy. Um, yeah. There's very little, though, on sort of oil and gas phasing out that sort of fossil fuel element um, on the agenda. Um, there's also plans for funding, which was agreed for sort of global yeah. south countries to adapt to climate change you a lot of them are facing the biggest impacts of it which was yeah. a, it was supposed to be rolled out from 2020 but it's been delayed due to covid but so there's sort of um, a financial plan to how that can actually that money can get to the global south as well as part of the the agreement by 23 mark ruskell uh, how will we know how will we define success at cop 26 i mean i i, I know you'll be looking to go far further perhaps than some countries are, and, and some leaks suggest that some countries like Australia and, and Brazil, etc., reluctant to, to to give way too too much. How will we know success? How will we judge success at at, at the Glasgow well, event? We'll, we'll, we'll know success, Brian, by uh, listening to the people who we should have been listening to twenty years ago, who are the scientists. Now, if the scientists look at all of the contributions that are being made from countries around the world at the end of COP26 in Glasgow to, to deliver that Paris Agreement. And they say this will keep us within that zone of safety, under 1.5 degrees of global heating. Yeah. Then it will be a success. But at the moment, that, that's not the case. The, the contributions that states are currently bringing forward, uh, we would struggle to stay with un, under three degrees of global warming, which would be utterly catastrophic, utterly catastrophic. Under, under that level of global heating, we're going to see entire states like Kiribati, island states disappear, mass climate refugees and a collapse of economies as well. So th- this is really an existential crisis. And it, it, it's really for the scientists to make that judgment. The scientists, of course, have been, you know, piling out wa- warnings week in, week out. There was a warning last week from the UN in their global production report where they stated that currently states around the world are burning double the amount of oil and gas that we can afford to burn. If we're to stay within that that area of safety, that one. But Mark, I understand your I understand your point about the scientists, but the scientists don't have to face 
elections, they don't have to persuade voters that they need to give up their cars. They don't have to persuade voters that those you know, annual holidays to the sun are a thing of the past. They don't have to persuade voters that they need to lose their gas boilers and replace them w- w- with a different form, a different form of, of heating. I mean, those are going to be big, big challenges. Right. They don't have to tell the people in the North Sea that the, the 100,000 jobs dependent on oil and gas a- a- exploration are, are at an end. The, you, you, you're right, yeah, but it's, 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 it is all about how it's managed, old. right? But it's all about how it's managed. And I, I, I mean, I think there's leadership around the world on this question now. So if you look at the initiatives that the, that the Danes have started, the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance, I mean, what they're saying is that they're going to draw a line under oil and gas alliance. They're not going to allow any new licenses for oil and gas. Um, and they're going to gradually wind down the industry over time and ensure a just transition so that no communities and workers are left behind. And they're going to have a proper industrial strategy to then move those jobs into new low carbon economies uh-huh. of the future and invest in the future, as they've done with onshore wind in Denmark and other technologies. Sarah Boyk, I saw you, Sarah Boyk, you, you, you were nodding your head at, at, at that. But, but again, you know, you, you, your own Labour Party has faced criticism from, you know, the Prime Minister keeps quoting the, the remarks from the unions that, that you're trying to get ordinary people to turn away from the, the current style of life. It's going to be challenging. It's going to be tough. Yeah, but honestly, if you were in the Scottish Parliament debate yesterday, you'd have heard people from across the different parties talk about the benefits of us in Scotland acting now on climate change. And, and that's what we need to be doing. If you think about the renewables revolution, we've got more renewables to be built in Scotland. Um, I understand from the sector that they're talking about building new renewables both on and offshore. So where are the thousands of jobs that we know we could be building in Scotland? Because if this is a project that's not next year, but this is over the next decade, then there's supply chains, there's training, there's new jobs opportunities, there's linking in with the existing oil and gas sector and working out what the just transition is that Mark has meant for jobs for people who are already in work, but using their skills and technology for that transition. So it is about political leadership. I think that was one of the key things that was mentioned yesterday. And, and we had a debate just before the Scottish elections where across the parties again, the different committees of the Scottish Parliament called on the Scottish Government to do more. So we have had radical targets in 2009 and 2019. But in the last three years where the targets were examined, they've all been failed. So let's go for the stuff that we know we can make work using experience from other countries. But crucially using our own science and technology and business experience in Scotland. You're looking at our homes, installing heat pumps where it works, doing energy efficiency. There are thousands of jobs to be created. So there are challenges, but let's start off by looking at the opportunities and bringing people with us. And if you've ever been to a Climate Friday demo with the next generation of young people, it's, it's thinking about it's their futures. And even in Scotland, you know, we've had forest fires in the last couple of years and we've had floods in places you would never expect floods. And that's just us. And we're we're ahead of the game. So think about those less developed countries who don't have the resource. There's a massive moral obligation for us. And basically we have no choice. It's tough. It's tough, but we have no choice. We have to go down the road of renewables. The gas runs out, you know. Let's look at the opportunities here. And let's make sure that we use our skills. I mean, the the attraction of having COP26 in Glasgow is we've got good targets. We need to actually deliver them. And we could show how we could deliver them at different levels of government. It needs money and it needs political leadership. We just need to get on with it. I'm going to ask Deirdre Brock about the the, the leadership from the Scottish Government in a moment. But first of all, Deirdre, it's only fair to ask you, what's your general take on COP26? Prime Minister says it's in the balance. Uh, Is that rhetoric just, you know, 
preparing for for success, or he, he looks as if he's if he's as if he's genuinely worried about about the prospect. I'm not sure this prime minister genuinely worries about all that much, but I mean, I I think he is possibly trying to forestall criticism that is coming down the line because. There are clearly many bodies around the world, actually, that are looking at what's happening for this COP and don't feel that the UK government has put enough effort in. You know, when you look at the Paris COP, which I think, I mean, Mark would perhaps set me right on this, but I always sort of as probably the most successful COP there's been as of up to now in terms of the commitments it was able to get from a variety of countries right around the world. But as I understand it, France put in a huge amount of diplomatic effort in the two years running up to that COP. This UK government has had an extra year because of the delay, because of the uh, pandemic, and yet I don't feel has made the same sort of impact. And I don't think we're going to get that sort of agreement. I mean, you know, to be... You're not optimistic at all. Well, I mean, I'm always optimistic. I'm Australian. So, but um, (laughs) I think uh, it doesn't feel good. The mood music is not very good coming from scientists and from other countries around the world. I'd like to think otherwise. I, I think Scotland's got a good story to tell. We can always do so much more, um, but there is, uh, you know, things like taking the lead on the Climate Justice Fund, for example, I think the first in the world and some of the support we've been offering overseas. Um, not doing things like cutting international aid, which I think sent out a really bad message across the world. It was very much noticed by countries in the global south. But Chancellor says that will be restored. Well, yeah, OK, we'll see. Um, but it was just the wrong thing to do in the year of COP, and I think a lot of people recognise that. About, talk, when you talk about government leadership there, I'll bring in Ian Stewart in a minute, but you talk about government leadership there, the accusation, it's not accusation, it's fact, that the Scottish government's targets have not been met uh, when it, when it mm-hmm. comes to the interim targets in moving towards a reduction in, in, in climate change numbers. They've just mm-hmm. fallen short. Yeah, just fallen short. Yeah, they were very stretching targets. And both the Net Zero Cabinet Secretary and the First Minister have come out and said that they will be recalibrating and doubling down to make those efforts um, uh, to achieve those targets for them. But I just, uh, you know, I mean, I would say this, I suppose, but, you know, I, it does frustrate me that so much in, in looking at Scotland, that the energy is still reserved to Westminster and so much investment could be put into renewables that is now looking like it's going to nuclear, um, certainly on the back of yesterday's budget. Uh, and all again, the mood music in the Parliament. There's it's uh, yeah. I- increasingly a topic in the Westminster Parliament. One, one, one but, you know, marine more. tidal. I mean, there's so much potential there in Scotland. One more, Deirdre. The First Minister speech this this week saying, you know, we cannot rely on in in the the, the medium to longer term. We cannot rely on on continued extraction of of oil and gas. There has to be a different mm-hmm. way. And yet she she doesn't come down and say, for example, cancel the 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 Campbell Field. She, she, she well, she says, has written to the Prime Minister and asked him to reassess it. Yes, indeed. I think that's quite a strong message, actually. And I don't think there's been a response from the Prime Minister as of yet. But yeah. this is why, I mean, as Mark says, the just transition is essential. You cannot have a situation such as you had under Thatcher where, you know, thousands of people are thrown out of work almost overnight. And the impact that, you know, the dreadful impact that's had on communities across Scotland, you cannot have that again. The First Minister is determined that it will not happen in this, so we committed £500 million in the Just Transmission at Just Transition uh, uh, Fund not so so long ago, and, and we've asked that the UK government recognise that and match fund it, but so far no, no, no response. Yeah. Ian, Ian Stewart, do you believe the Scottish government, you know, it's it set what, what it believes and has said are, are, are world-leading targets. Uh, at, at the very least, does that not demonstrate an ambition of intent? Well, we all have to have a, a, a clear ambition. 
uh, of what we want uh, to deliver. It's not going to be any one government, uh, you know, in any part of the world that's going to solve this. Uh, it, you, you need that agreement. And, you know, the, the progress that has been made, and I absolutely accept there's still a long way to go, but when the UK it took over the presidency uh, of COP, um, it was, I think it was around 30% of the world's economy uh, was covered with uh, net zero targets. It's now 70%. Now, there's a huge job to do to get uh, the, the, the remaining bits of the world uh, signed up to that. Uh, but I think we, we need to acknowledge that progress has been made. And in terms of the, the, the overall optimism, I think the Prime Minister was just being quite candid and saying, look, there are still big, big agreements to, to be reached. And I think it, it's almost an inevitability in, in global conferences of this nature. It, it will all probably come down to the wire. Uh, yeah, even, with, even uh, though, of course, uh, as, as was mentioned, it, it takes months, indeed, years of of planning and, and you know, the, the, the texts and draft texts will be going back and forward. Let me ask you one thing, uh, Minister, I'll ask you one thing that was mentioned by um, Mark Ruskell. You know, you're days away from an effort to reduce uh, the, the, the impact of climate change, and yet the Chancellor announces a cut, a cut in air passenger duty. That seems to be going exactly the opposite way of, of the objective that you, you, you're presumably setting yourself for COP. But he also announced a big increase uh, in the most polluting flights uh, with a new ban for ultra long distance uh, travel. The, the correction on the domestic flights is, is something that's been, in, been lobbied for by many for a long time to, to correct a, a double taxation that's been there. But if you look at our investment in transport in the round, what we're putting into rail investment, into electric vehicles and the like, uh, I, I think is groundbreaking. And you know what I want. I'm I'm probably Parliament's biggest railway buff, uh, and you know what I really want to see is uh, those high speed rail connections from uh, Scotland through the the north of England and the Midlands uh, to London, uh, and make that a viable uh, alternative uh, to to short haul. I think everybody will. Everybody will gladly hand you the title of railway buff. I think. I think around there. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, more, maybe I don't know. Maybe there's some challenges. Maybe, maybe David. Oh, uh, wait, it's great. You can afford it. Mark, 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 mm. I'm going to bring in Mark, and I see Sarah Boy keen to come in as well. But Mark, the, the Ian Stewart adamant there that, that the UK government has has is committed to change and is lobbying and working and planning for change. Yeah, I mean, let, let me just pick up on on the rail issue. It's good to hear that Ian's a, a railway buff. I'm a bit of a railway buff myself, but that's great if you can afford it. But you know, if if we're gonna if we're going to make flights between, say, Edinburgh and Manchester uh, dirt cheap, people who don't have the income to spend on expensive rail fares will obviously choose that option. Uh, people will fly down from Eating and fly back up to Edinburgh again if they're, if they're business customers. But we need to really embed the changes that we saw during COVID. You know, we're doing an online meeting here this afternoon. That's a good way to get connectivity for business rather than continuing to subsidize Mark, frequent think- flying. Which is which is very damaging, and yeah, it's, it's welcome. Think, forgive me, Mark, Mark. Do you think the consumers? Do you think the people in in Scotland? Do, do we do we need to get used, and do we need to be persuaded to change our lifestyles rather more radically than it, than is currently the case in terms of cars and flights and you know use of, of of oil and gas? Yeah, absolutely. But I think look, some of these issues are about creating system change that can then tackle climate change. If if you're if you're in a home and you're experiencing um, high energy costs, you're not really going to be bothered about where that heat comes from. Uh, what, what you want is affordable heat. 
that is efficient and you want to live in an efficient home that is warm and healthy to live in. And a lot of that is down to the energy company that supplies uh, your heat or your electricity. A lot of it comes down to the incentives that are there and the support programs to invest in your home and to invest in decarbonizing your home. And so that's where a lot of the action is that can really drive down fuel poverty. And it's why, you know, the Greens now in, in Parliament, uh, Minister Patrick Harvey has launched one of his first actions, the Heat in Buildings Decarbonization Strategy, which sounds, it's a very long, long name, but what it is essentially is about tackling climate change while at the same time making it easier and healthier to live in a home that's more climate proof. So we've got to make it easy for people. And some of this is about changing the system so it's just cheaper and easier. And it's the first choice. You don't need to think about making these changes because it's the obvious choice to use public transport, walk, cycle, live in a, live in a, a cheaper, warmer home. Uh, Sarah, you were keen to come in. Yeah, very keen to come in because for a lot of people, it isn't actually a choice to use a train because they don't live near a train station. Um, we've lost bus services in the last few years. So I think for us in Scotland, that point Mark made about enticing people is really, really important. Incentivising people. It's not just giving people a lecture and saying we need to be more carbon friendly. It's actually making it possible for a lot of people. So I was at a, a really good presentation this week about high speed rail. Um, getting the commitment that that's definitely going to come up both the east and the west coast, getting a timescale on it, getting the Scottish government to work with the UK government um, and making sure that our train services in Scotland are not slashed because the current SNP Green Plan to reduce our services by 300 services a day. And that's like going into reverse at the point at which you've got to accelerate. Um, and electric vehicles are going to be brilliant for those who have them, but you've still got to pay a huge amount of money for them. Um, and we need to make sure our public transport networks work, that we've got decent, safe walking and cycling routes. It's about having a joined up approach. And I think there's loads more we could be doing on that. And in terms of our housing, um, yeah. it, yeah, I suppose our big three areas for emissions in Scotland, transport, primarily cars. So we've got to go for public transport investment. Um, the second one would be our homes. Um, and that's a massive issue in terms of investment, enticing people, but also supporting them with subsidies, um, giving them advice, making it possible. And the third issue is how we use our land as well. So it's not that we need to choose which option we're going for. We're now going to have to really power ahead on all of those. And I, I was really shocked this week in preparation for the debate we had yesterday. There's not been a joint ministerial committee between the Scottish and the UK governments for three years. Yeah. Um, this is the kind of thing where it doesn't matter that you disagree on stuff, but at least get around the table, find the common areas and prioritise and, and get us the infrastructure we need and get that, you know, get that real push that we need, not in 20 years, but we need it now. And we need to show the way. Let me bring in David Ball. David, the, 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 we've talked here about what could be achieved by those who attend COP, but there's some, there's some big names staying away. I mean, Her Majesty the Queen, because of uh, medical advice, will, will be doing a, a video link rather than appearing in person. But there's some big political leaders staying away too, isn't there? Isn't there? Well, that's right. I mean, Vladimir Putin has said that he, he's not coming. The Chinese Premier as well, also not set to come, although China are sending a big delegation still. Um, so, I mean, it will come down to that sort of the big names um, showing the leadership, but um, there's still going to be a lot of officials from all the countries there and hopefully they can sort of thrash out a deal, even though there will be some big names missing yet. Like I said, the Queen is, was, was due to attend yeah. a event. But she, the, the, way, she the way it works, David, we have, we have the Leaders' Summit and then, and then the, 
then the teams don't they get down to in individual negotiation over the over the text of a, of a communique, which presumably would then have to be endorsed by, by by links with the leaders as well. Yeah, and I think COVID has actually sort of set them back a little bit. A lot of preparations would go okay. in hand beforehand. Sort of, there'd be lots of meetings taking place, which haven't been able to happen. So hopefully, they they can hit the ground running in those two weeks. But they'll it'll be a very busy fortnight for them. Deirdre, it's a, it's a good point to, to, to bear in mind this this wider picture, isn't it? I mean, we 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 talk entirely reasonably and understandably. But what we're trying to do in Scotland, but if you, you're talking about China, you know, one, one of the largest uh, energy, possibly the largest energy using on the, on, the, on the planet, you're talking about Russia. And if they're not making the degree of commitment, I'm not saying they're not, but if, if, they, if they're not making the degree of the commitment, if they're suggesting holding back your, your own dear country of Australia, suggesting do we have to really cut back on, on, on coal exploitation quite, quite as quickly as that? You know, there's, there's a wee touch of St. Augustine going on, isn't there? You know, make, make me taste, but not yet, oh Lord, not yet. <laughs> um, I know, I know. And that is that is one of the difficulties that we all have to deal with at COP. And uh, it, that's where persuasion, persuasion and diplomacy just play such a big part in all of this. Um, I mean, I for me, a really important part of COP, which I think Mark touched on, is just about enabling those voices that haven't really had a chance to be heard in the past, at past COPs, um, to be heard. So, yes, of course, China and Russia, that is extremely important. I know Kerry, for example, has certainly been uh, doing a lot of work with, with China and trying to, to persuade them and has made some headway. But um, for me, listening to the Global South and talking about matters like yeah. loss and damage is really important. And I don't think that's been the case up to now. I mean, uh, we had the Stop Climate Chaos Scotland in front of us in the Scottish Affairs Committee uh, recently. And they were just, they were brilliant, actually. They had some really good points. But one of the things they made was that the um, uh, COP uh, has never had on its agenda loss and damage, and they would like to see that made a permanent feature um, for, for the future. Um, that, and also, of course, identifying finance that can help to support those countries deal with um, climate challenges. That's a huge challenges. issue, isn't it, Deirdre? A huge it issue. Is, really it is, but it needs to be looked at. You know, these are countries that had the least to do with creating this problem. Yeah. Developed countries need to step up, I think. And, and, and they were given a, a specific expectation that, that, that funding would be there by 2020, and it's just not been to talk about 2023 now. Well, that's actually separate to loss and damage. I mean, the $100 billion. Uh, yeah, 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 but I mean, um, that's, that's very important as well. And I have to say those countries are looking at the fact that that money has not been paid in full as of yet, uh -huh. and that is causing quite a lot of um, suspicion as to what happens next in terms of, of loss and damage and whether whether these developed countries will actually step up and, and pay the full amount. But so, you know, you've got young people who, you know, will have to live with the, with the outcomes of, of climate change the longest. You've got indigenous peoples who, um, who's, who's again, are, are sort of at the, at the forefront of, of dealing with the problems of climate, um, climate crisis. Uh, and then, of course, you have the developing South and uh, yeah. island states that um, are really, really at the forefront. And having to deal with it on a daily, on a daily. Ian, day. Ian, is, is it an issue here that that you know each country wants to wait to see where the others are going? You know, no no one individual country or grouping of countries wants to take a leap forward if they think that you know, for example, in another another region, another zone, another large polluter will will not take a leap forward. They all need to they all need to move, or or none will move. I, I think that's a very fair point, uh, and an and inevitable part of of, of international. Uh, diplomacy and it, and it's trying to you know understand that that, that common good and the cost that will fall on all 
uh, if we don't make progress on this. Um, and and the, on that diplomacy, maybe it touched on Australia, the Australian Prime Minister uh, wasn't coming, uh, and that there was a I know there was a considerable amount of pressure and diplomacy was exerted to to make sure he is coming. And as far as I know, he still is. Um, yeah. And you, you know, we would we would love you know President Z to come, and and those efforts uh, continue. But if he doesn't come, I don't think that signals that uh, China's not going to play ball. Um, you know, the, yeah, okay. as David said, sending there a delegation, is a, of course, yeah, over two hundred. Yeah. Uh, you know, very senior uh, people coming there, and the you know, I do believe that China has an ambition to move away from coal uh, in its uh, in its domestic energy. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you in a second to give your your, your you know, sum up your views of where where you feel COP is going, whether you're optimistic or what. But I think we should. It would be remiss not to make at least a mention of the, the impact, David Ball, perhaps, the, the, David, the, the impact upon Glasgow. There's, there's some apprehension about the, you know, d- disruption. There's apprehension about, well, the, the, the train strike's been, been, been settled, but there's apprehension about the, the impact upon transport and, and, and other um, facilities in Glasgow, isn't there? Yeah, I think you kind of expect some disruption on such a big event. Obviously, the strike being averted is good news, um, but I think the organisers of these COPs, all cops would expect some disruption protests are part of the sort of culture around it um, and as long as there are sort of logistics and um, contingency plans in place i think people will just kind of have to ex- accept that the for the next two weeks it is going to be quite tricky getting in and out of, of well, we've glasgow got a, we've, got a, we've got a point from ryan from glasgow the christmas market he says that's the market in george square they've had to cancel it because they can't get a guarantee of getting into the, to the square early enough to get ready he says fireworks night road closures he his conclusion is this conference is definitely not for the pe- for the people in Glasgow. Where's the benefit for those who who, who live here? Mark Russell, a bit unfair, but but let, let's ask each. I mean, is, is is it going to be beneficial to the people of Glasgow and Scotland to have this this degree of disruption? Is it something we have to live with, given that it is a global summit on an incredibly important topic? Mark, I think I think we do. But I mean, I think there will be opportunities for everybody who can get to Glasgow to take part in the events that are, that are there. I mean, it's not just for the global leaders. You know, there's a green zone. There's lots of civic group activity. There's going to be lots of activity on the streets as well. So, you know, the participation will be there. But I, I think one of the, the most shocking stories that I've seen in the last week is about the, 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 the kind of gentrification, the kind of Airbnb culture that we now see in our, in our cities. Um, you know, shocking stories of, of people from the global south trying to get accommodation in Glasgow and being yeah. faced with, you know, accommodation bills are 10 times more than they would they would normally be from hotels and other providers. But then, you know, people coming in on, the, on this kind of short term let's agenda with Airbnb contracts and then changing them at the last minute and trying to you know, extract more and more money for people. I mean, I think, it, you know, that's been an Edinburgh problem up to now, right, particularly with the festival. We're seeing that spread across Scotland. I think it's really important why we get to grips with short-term lets as, a, as an issue. But, yeah, look, I mean, this will be disruptive for people in Glasgow. But, uh-huh. you know, if we think it's disruptive, look at the disruption that's coming from climate change. That's going to affect Glasgow. Arguably, it's already affected Glasgow this week with the floods that we've seen. So we've got to look at the bigger picture here. Let, let's, well, let, let's get back to that bigger picture then, unless anyone else wants to come in on the Glasgow the only issue we were raising today was making sure that we keep things COVID safe and with the huge problems our NHS is facing, proper advice from people, support from GPs, because with road shuts, you know, how do people 
road shut, how do people get to hospitals? Um, and there's there's been quite a lot of concerns raised by people in Glasgow about waste issues and cleanliness. So there's there's a big big piece of work for the Scottish government to do in terms of working with the local council in Glasgow. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that thing that Mark was mentioning about the Airbnb, that was an exclusive in the Herald this week. Um, somebody trying to get hiking prices by $2,000 to a, to an American delegate. I don't, I don't think it ended well. I think I think the individual concern has been taken off the list, I'm, I, as I remember from the, the Herald story. But OK, let, let, let's let's move back. We're, we're almost out of time, but let, let, let's move back to final thoughts on, on COP. How, how, how will we judge it? How will we know it? It, 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 it is a success if it is? What, 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 are we, what are we looking for? What are we anticipating? You know, give me your general take. Let's start with Mark Russell and, and, and go through each of our four panelists. Mark, what, how, what are you looking for from, from COP26? What are, you, what are you hoping for? What are you expecting? Well, I said earlier, it, it needs to listen to the science. Yeah, the, the, the politics must follow the science, not, not the other way around. This can't be triangulated. Uh, this has to follow the science directly. But I think it's really important also. And you and, think and the science is indisputable? I mean, there's some... Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but I think the point that Deirdre and others have been making is about the Global South as well. And, and it'll be a failure unless the, the voice of the Global South is heard at, at COP and is built into the agreements that follow and that come out of this. You know, Paris was about setting a framework for how we meet 1.5 degrees. This is a COP based on ambition. It has to be about... The, the, the developed countries putting forward strong global ambition. And part of that ambition has to be delivering on the commitments, particularly around loss and damage and how we help countries to adapt and deal with the catastrophic that, damage that is coming anyway. So it's that voice that needs to be heard and it that's, needs that's, to result in action. That's what you want, Mark. Are you optimistic you will get that? Are you optimistic you will hear that? It's difficult to tell at the moment because the talks are hermetically sealed. So even, you know, whether we'll even get a sense of that in the blue zone at COP or in the green zone, who knows? I suspect 98% of the deal has already been agreed and it'll be the final 3% that, that'll be up for, for last minute negotiation. So thanks, Mark. Sarah Boyack, what, what, what are your hopes? What are your expectations? They, they may be different. My hopes are that we will get that 1.5 degree uh, being the target that we need to meet because that's what the world needs. And if you look at the horrendous floods we had in Europe and Germany in particular this summer, the fires we've had in the United States and Australia, you know, it is hitting the big, uh, more well-off countries now. So we need to act and we need to act urgently. Um, and I hope also that there will be investment, and loss and damage, and that we will actually see uh, investment for adaptation for countries that are already experiencing uh, climate impacts yeah. like Bangladesh, and and the the price of not acting is you know millions of refugees that is unthinkable for us. People losing their lives and they're losing their places to live. And it, it's not about whether you're optimistic or or hopeful. We just got to really hope that the world leaders look at each other and think about not just the next generation, but this generation. It's their moral and political responsibility to get the political fixes that we can then put in place across the world. But we, it's got to work. Uh, leaders have got to come to that agreement because, um, you know, we got the agreement principle at Paris, but not the action. That's what's going to be critical. Do we get the action? And do those world leaders sign up? And, and look at the op opportunities that come from tackling climate change. We've got to do that as well. The business, the social, the environmental, the human opportunities, and not forget it's there's opportunities to be seized here. De Deirdre, Deirdre Brock, same question. Hopes, expectations, I stress again, they may be different. 
I hope the great city of Glasgow and Scotland will be shown off to their best advantage in this conference. Um, I think uh, one of the really important things I hope is going to come out of this with some of the work that Mark Carney is doing is on green finance and making sure that uh, people are properly aware of the need for a shift from investment in fossil fuel industries into renewables. And that's a really uh, that, that, that side of things, you know, where pensions decide to invest their funds, for example, is yeah. such an important matter. Uh, and I think it's not widely, you know, people aren't widely aware of it. And I think that needs to be really heightened up the uh, hiked up the agenda. Um, the whole issue of loss and damage, the global South countries must be heard at this COP. Um, you know, I think one of the reasons why there was such an insistence on it being held in person was that the global South countries felt that if it was held online, they wouldn't be heard to the same extent as they will be here. They need to be there speaking to the developed countries uh, and an opportunity for Scotland to display its climate leadership and the um, some of the sort of world leading technologies that we're developing here. Uh, the Lighthouse is going to be featuring uh, events and um, showcasing various things from around Scotland um, with the Scottish Enterprise. And I think that's going to be a really important side of, of COP for Scotland as well. Thanks very much. Minister, finally, Ian Stewart, your, your hopes, your expectations. Thank you. And firstly, apologies. I, I think I my technology broke down and uh, I, I uh -huh. for, for a minute. So I haven't heard all the discussion. So my apologies for that. Um, but firstly, uh, you know, obviously, I want to see the the, the global agreement uh, to keep us, uh, you know, keep 1.5 within reach. Um, I actually want to agree with Deirdre on, particularly on the finance point. Um, I think that is going to be a huge, uh, hugely important part of the, the conference. And actually, a lot of work's been done already. Uh, we had in London the global investment uh, conference uh, just last week. Um, and I think there is a, a marked shift in, in uh, understanding and attitude in the finance sector uh, to do that. Uh, but finally, I think the, the benefit of having this in person is that you, you create this sort of, uh, sort of ecosystem of idea sharing uh, where different, whether it's a technological innovation or a way a city organizes something or island communities get together to share uh, different ideas. It's a great learning opportunity uh, for different parts of the world to learn from each other and then take those away and try and implement them in their in their home areas. Many, many thanks to all the panellists today. Uh, loads of luck to the delegates, loads of luck to Glasgow. hope Glasgow flourishes, hope it flourishes again with, with, within, within the, the, the conference. Thanks to David Ball as well for joining us today. Thanks to the panel. Thanks to you for listening, watching whatever one does to a podcast. From me, Brian Taylor, Kudaluthan. This podcast was brought to you by The Herald. Take 20% off an annual subscription to The Herald with our exclusive podcast code. Just add Herald Pod 2021 to your basket and get instant, unfiltered access to our website. And you can also get involved with the Brian Taylor podcast as well. Tune in on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube every Thursday afternoon to catch Brian and his panel chat live and ask your questions to the people across the political scene. 